0: Hello everybody. It's great to be here with you. Uh, Zach, thank you for having us. Thank you guys for hosting us. It's been a great joy of mine the last couple of years to get to know Kyle and Zach uh, as well as some of you at the FIRE conferences the last few years. Um, I've, always find, I've always found Kyle and Zach to be highly relatable because they love the Lord. They love his word. And it's not like all right, I'm going to tell on pastor's meetings, for those of you who don't go. Sometimes it's like, hey, how's it going, brother? Oh, good. Hey, yeah. hey, yeah." Hey. And everybody like kind of pretends everything's great when they're like, it's hard. And they don't do that. So I really appreciate that about them. And we've had some really precious moments together. And so thank you. And thank you to the worship team on behalf of my daughter, Noelle. Um, our church has been going through a lot of afflictions lately. None worse than having me lead the singing a cappella. So uh, thank you for ministering to those deep wounds, uh, you guys, with uh, your music ministry. We appreciate it, and Noel, my daughter, is rejoicing. Um, all right, today the passage that I want to share with you uh, that uh, Kyle just read is one that's incredibly near and dear to my heart uh, when I was preaching through 2 Corinthians several years ago, this passage, along with a couple others of 2 Corinthians, gripped me in a way that permanently marked me. Uh, every time when I preach, I ask God to take his word and make it like a living organism inside of me before I go up to share with anyone. And God answers that prayer uh, pretty much every time, but there are some moments that are stronger than others. And this passage to me, is so deeply personal. Um, I love sharing this passage. I preached on it multiple times, and I hope God uh, blesses you with this passage. I believe that the American church is in desperate need of understanding what this passage speaks to. Uh, we are in love with comforts. We are in love with ease. We are in love with prosperity, even people who have sound doctrine. And sometimes we don't realize how in love with it we are and how deceived by it we can be. And this passage obliterates a lot of the false notions in our land of what it looks like to follow Christ for real and what it looks like when God is with you and when God is moving. And so I think if we let these things define, um, we let this passage inform our thinking. It'll help us be more in line with our crucified Lord who was homeless, who was rejected, who was persecuted, who was made fun of, who was rejected, who was betrayed, who was imprisoned wrongly, who was tortured and who was killed. That's who we're following. And a servant is not above his master. And there are no exceptions to this, even in the United States. So, there you go. Um there's the intro. And as I share this with you, I want you to know as we go through these sufferings and hard times, our church is going through some difficult seasons right now. So we come to fellowship with you and share this passage with you um, as those who are very familiar with really uh, hard things. And so... Our text today, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 1 to 10, it occurs in the middle of a section wherein Paul is exposing false teachers, and he is defending the authenticity of his uh, apostleship for the purpose of protecting and preserving the gospel as well as the, the, the faith of the saints in Corinth. There's a serious attack. False teachers are trying to divide this church. They're trying to make the church think Paul is false. And they're so preaching false Christ, they're preaching false gospels, and so Paul has to defend this. He doesn't just sit there and say, oh, well, hey, we'll see what God does. He's defending it. And so, in defending himself, Paul enters into the practice that he calls the foolish methods of boasting and outward things so that the false teachers can be exposed and in so doing, Paul's gonna boast and use the very methods of the arrogant false teachers. And so during the second half of chapter 11, Paul articulated his boasts of outward things that validate his ministry. Now unlike the false teachers who boast of outward things, who boast of uh, success, who boast of comforts, who boast of money, Paul boasts in something very different. And to set up our text, we're going to read 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 30. Listen to what Paul is bragging about. And keep in mind, he's doing this to defend his ministry from false teachers. Verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, and countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst often without food in cold and exposure and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches who is weak and I am not weak who is made to fall and I am not indignant if you were a minister and you had planted this church and you loved it dearly with all that you are and these wolves were attacking it. And you have to defend your ministry. Is this the list you'd give? How do we know you're from God? Bro, I'm persecuted all the time. That's how. I've been imprisoned. I've been beaten multiple times. Yeah, my, my ship wrecks every time I try to go somewhere. It doesn't matter where I go. I go to the wilderness. I'm in danger. Uh, I go to the city. I'm in danger there too. The Jews don't like me. The Gentiles like me. They the don't like me. The fake Christians don't like me. And you know what, sometimes when I minister, I don't even have enough food to get full. I have enough to stay alive, but not to get full. I don't even have enough clothing to stay warm. I got enough to stay alive, but not to, stay, uh, but, but not to be worn. That's how you know. Crazy list. How many people in America, fresh out of seminary, Applying to the uh, applying to their church puts that on their resume, and not only that. Who uh, we can ask who would put that on their resume? What church would be like? Oh yeah, let's call this dude. But this is Paul's boast. I fear greatly that many American Christians would read Paul's description of what he's going through in verses 23 to 30 and conclude God isn't with Paul at all, and they'd encourage him to quit. They might say things to Paul like, hey, you know, Paul, hey, man, you're a good guy. You know, your heart's in the right place, but don't you think if God were in this, don't you think you'd have enough food to at least get full or enough clothing to at least be comfortable if God was moving? Don't you think maybe you'd see better results than getting beaten all the time and going to jail? I mean, come on, Paul. God has even wrecked your ship three times while you were trying to minister. Now, the Jews hate you. The Romans hate you. The, some of these professing Christians hate you. Paul, don't you think God's trying to show you that you're missing your calling? When are you going to listen? How many people you think would talk to Paul that way? In our land. I think there's a lot. And they're totally wrong. And if that is how you would talk to Paul, I want to love you with this and challenge you with this, that you need to renew your mind. And let this passage teach you what the real Christian life is like and what the real Christian ministry is like so that you're in step with God and you're not Job's friends. So after boasting of his weaknesses in verses 23 through 29, Paul ends this section by saying, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And when he says that at the end of our section that I read in chapter 11, you need to understand for chapter 12, that is the key statement that holds everything together. You have to make sure you carry that into the flow of thought. Because remember, your Bible was not originally written with chapters and verses. And so, <clears throat> this morning, we're going to cover Paul's final boast in 2 Corinthians 12-10. through So, let's go ahead and start working through the passage, our main text. Let's start in verse 1. Paul says, I must go on boasting. Now, remember from chapter 11, what's he boasting of? Things that show his weakness. I must go on boasting. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So here at first glance, Paul, though Paul tells us he's going to go on boasting and it's been clear he's been boasting about his weakness, it appears as though Paul's now about to boast of his strengths. It appears as though he's going to boast about flashy things. I mean, visions and revelations of the Lord, like that's an incredible boast. Authentic visions and authentic revelations from God, they are very rare and privileged experience, uh, most of which were reserved for apostles uh, that, that most people never have. And so surely revelations and visions of the Lord, these are the types of things that people who want to vindicate themselves as being super spiritual, these are the kinds of things they'd hang their hat on. In fact, this is exactly the type of thing the false teachers in Corinth would have boasted in. And this boast, it appears to be a stark contrast from the things that Paul boasts about in chapter 11. However, we'll see that though this initial boast appears to be this way, by the end of the teaching, he'll end up continuing to boast in his weakness and then explain some wonderful theology about weakness in the Christian life. So there's verse 1. Let's move forward to verse 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. So here Paul begins this boast about himself by referring to himself in the third person. I'll comment more about this in a couple of verses. But for now, I'll simply say, I believe that he's talking about himself in the third person because he's already told us, remember in chapter 11, he feels uncomfortable boasting. I'm talking like a madman. So here he's going to start talking about himself in the third person. <coughs> Excuse me. And so this man Paul speaks of is a man in Christ who's taken up into the third heaven. What's the third heaven? Okay, for the sake of time, I don't have, I'm not going to deeply unpack this, but the Bible, I believe, my view, speaks of heaven in three different realms. Heavens are just called the sky, where rain comes from. There are psalms that speak of that, that call it heavens. Heavens also speak to the place where the, sun, where the stars are. So to us, it'd be like outer space. That's called heavens. And then heaven is also the throne room and dwelling place of God. Three heavens. And so when Paul speaks to the third heaven, he's talking about the throne room of God and the dwelling of God. So this person he's boasting about, he doesn't even know, which is himself, whether it's in the body or not in the body, he was taken up to the dwelling place of God for these visions and revelations. Like, wow. And so, let's look at the next verse and listen to how Paul describes that experience. Verse three. Paul says, and I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. So now, we get this description here of this place, and it's called paradise. And this place being called paradise, I don't think it's a different place than the third heaven. It's the same place. Being in the third heaven or in paradise is being in the dwelling place of God. Paradise is a common description in the scriptures for the dwelling of God. Remember, Jesus said in Luke 23, 43 to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me where? In paradise. In Revelation 2 verse 7 Jesus promised the church in Ephesus to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And so what makes heaven a paradise is the wonderful truth that God is there and that he dwells among his people. God fills heaven. He fills it thoroughly, and he is, his glory is tangibly known and felt and experienced in a marvelous way. And so Paul was caught into the dwelling place of God, which is the third heaven, which is also paradise. Let's continue in verse 4. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So now we see that in this place, Paul heard things and it came with such glory and it came with such wonder that he can't even repeat what he heard. The text says there are things that man may not utter. And so I think there's possibly two reasons why he couldn't repeat what he heard. Reason number one: first, how do you capture in human words what heavenly glories are like? I mean, it's, it's otherworldly, so it's, it's difficult to put it into human words. I mean, when you read Revelation, sometimes it feels like John's kind of struggling to d- describe it. So it's very difficult to describe heavenly glories in earthly words. It's kind of like manna, right? Remember in Exodus 16, manna is not of this world. It's otherworldly bread. In fact, it's called what is it? That's what the Hebrew word for manna is. It's not an earthly thing. So perhaps the reason he can't utter it is because he can't put it into words. The other reason is perhaps God forbade him from describing in human words the things that, that he saw. Whatever it is that Paul's seeing, it's like, whoa. I shut my mouth, and I cannot even talk. This sounds pretty cool. So... Who can truthfully say that this has ever happened to them? Paul's saying this. This is Paul's boast. And so far, in my opinion, this is a very dangerous boast. And it's very different from the boasts of chapter 11. And the reason why I believe it's dangerous is because it would be so easy for Corinth to restart certain sins that have been in their church's past. Everybody remember 1 Corinthians? Chapters one through four, what's the main problem there? The church is causing divisions over I follow Paul, I follow Apostle, or Apollos, I follow Peter. Uh, they, they're dividing over that. So when Paul steps in right here, he's like, oh, yeah, guess what? I've been to heaven. Like, this is dangerous. This might just kickstart this whole divisive nightmare, which, by the way, is going on still in 2 Corinthians and is getting worse. So this seems at this point to be not particularly wise of Paul to say. <clears throat> let's read verses five to six. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not uh, be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Okay, so this is kind of confusing, right? <laughs> Let me explain. Paul says here that he's not talking about himself, that he's boasting about this other man. But even if he did want to boast about these things, he could because they've really happened to him. But as it pertains to himself, he's only going to boast of his weakness. Now the difficulty in this text is that we know he actually is talking about himself. In verse 1, Paul started by telling Corinth what he's about to say as it pertains to visions and revelations from the Lord is connected to his continued personal boast from chapter 11 additionally in the beginning of verse seven he tells us he's talking about himself again look at it so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations what revelations is he talking about the same ones he just described paul's talking about himself he is the one whose uh, uh, conceit needs to be restrained because of these revelations and so, as I mentioned earlier, I believe the reason why he momentarily switches from talking in the first person to talking in the third person is because this boasting makes him uncomfortable. He said that earlier in chapter 11. Additionally, he knows there's a real danger Corinth might boast in him for the wrong reasons, and that's why he explicitly says what he, that he doesn't want that. Look, he says that right here at the end. He doesn't want people to think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So Paul said in verse 5 that he intends to boast of his weakness. And after describing this glorious experience of being taken to heaven, he uses that very incredible experience not to puff himself up as the man, but to immediately transition into describing his weakness. And so contrary to what the false teachers would do, for the rest of this section, and the rest of this message, we're going to look at the wonderful things connected to Paul's weakness in verses 7 through 10. So there you go. There's the setup. Now the good stuff. This is my favorite part. Let's read verses 7 to 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What an abrupt transition. We go from the unfathomable experience of being in the paradise of the third heaven and hearing things that are so glorious they can't even be put into words into a discussion about a painful thorn that is crushing Paul. And this text shows us that I believe the dual realities of the Christian life and the Christian ministry. There is the reality on one hand of heavenly glory that comes in power and it's amazing and it's precious and it's wonderful and it's right in the presence of God and it's yes. And then there is this reality on the other hand of this thorn that pokes you and sticks you so deeply that there is this weakness that is indescribable. It sounds a lot like, you know, the cross and the resurrection thing that we rejoice in all the time. That's the reality of the Christian life. And so, <clears throat> we're going to break down verse 7 to 10, and we're going to ask some questions about what is going on here in the text. The first question that we're going to ask of the text is, what is the thorn now, in answering this question, we have to first realize that in our text, Paul's giving us an analogy that's very understandable. He has a thorn in his flesh or his, his body. It's not a literal thorn in his literal skin. Instead, this is figurative language that's painting an experience uh, of pain and, and difficulty to give us an understanding of a spiritual reality that God does in us. Have you ever had a literal thorn poking in your flesh? Where I'm from we had these things called goat heads and we would ride our bikes and they'd flatten our tires and then sometimes we'd run out with you know, d- 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 bare feet and they'd get in our feet and it, it's awful. It's stuck in your foot, you can't get it out and then if you take it out real bad it like breaks a piece off in there in your foot now you're like limping around and it, it's horrible. Or maybe if, if you've never been in that context, maybe you've broken a dish and stepped on a little piece of glass and then it's stuck in your foot and you're walking around and it's all on your heel and everything, when that happens to you, Nobody says, sign me up for the 100-yard dash. You don't say that because there's this weakness in your foot. You are not at full strength. You're not able to function like you normally do. Everything's ginger. Everything's slow. Everything has this caution to it because something is lodged within you that is weakening you. This leads us to the definition of the thorn. The thorn is anything that causes us to become weak. Where do I get that from the text? Multiple places. First, all the way back in chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, Paul boasted about his imprisonments, persecutions, beatings, hardships, etc. Uh, and he said at the end of that section that he's boasting in things that cause him weakness. So chapter 12, as we just saw in verse 1, it's a continuation of his boasting in weakness. After boasting about his visions, he says again in chapter 12, verse 5, that he's going to boast about his weakness, just like he did in chapter 11. Well, what's causing the weakness in the context of chapter 12? This thing he calls the thorn. Notice in verse 8, Paul pleads for the removal of the thorn, and Jesus denies that request by saying, my power is made perfect in weakness. So when Jesus refuses to remove the thorn because it's the, the thorn is the opportunity for his power to rest upon Paul and his weakness, the obvious conclusion is that the thorn is the cause of the weakness, Finally, after concluding his teaching on the thorn in the second half of verse 9, Paul says he will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. And then in verse 10, says he's content with the weaknesses of insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, which are exactly the same types of things he was describing back in chapter 11. <clears throat> So the thorn is any difficulty in life that is painful and that weakens us. And chapter 11, verses 23 through 30 is a representative list of the types of things that are examples of the kind of thorns Paul has in mind. <coughs> so the thorn is something that causes weakness. Now the next crucial question we have to ask of verses seven through 10 is where does this thorn come from? There are two answers in the text. And I want to plead with you to grasp this. It is critical for your life as a Christian that you understand the thorns of your life come from two places. Let's start with the first one. First one is found in verse seven. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. So here we see that the thorn in the flesh, it comes from Satan. This is very important to realize. And ironically, the same verse that says the thorn is a messenger of Satan that comes to harass Paul, he says that this thorn is sent to keep him from being conceited. Well, does that sound like something Satan would want? Satan doesn't want us to not be conceited. He wants us to be conceited. Now, Paul says th- this thorn comes from Satan. It's his messenger of Satan to harass us, to keep us from becoming conceited. Satan doesn't want to keep us from becoming conceited. Who wants that? God. There are two spiritual supernatural beings at work in your thorns, Satan and God. Satan has demonic purposes for the thorn. God has good purposes for the thorn. And God is the Lord of the thorn. And when Paul prays that Jesus removes the thorn, Jesus did not say, I can't remove the thorn because Satan's in control of it. He doesn't say that. He says, the presence of the thorn is going to teach you some things, the sufficiency of his grace and his power in your weakness. But what's important for us to know is that when the thorn is in you, there's a satanic origin to it that's going to bring a message to you that will harass you. Some translations say it will torment you. And then there's another purpose that God has for the thorn. And it's very important for us to realize this as Christians because when thorns come into your life, when they lodge into you and they overwhelm you with pain and they drown you in weakness and they threaten to undo you, you have to be alert that Satan has one purpose for the thorn and God has another purpose for the thorn because I guarantee you, you're going to be tempted to believe Satan's lies about how to interpret the thorn. You have to know this. What are Satan's goals? I think Jesus summed up his agenda pretty well in John 10.10. 10. Satan comes to do what? To steal, to kill, and to destroy. So any message Satan attaches to your thorn is going to have that agenda. Satan's goals through thorny hardships, he wants to steal your joy in the Lord. He wants to steal the peace that Christ gives you. He is zealous to create despair and to create anxiety in us through the thorn. And when that happens, Satan then can begin his work of trying to kill your faith. 1 Peter 5, Peter tells us that Satan prowls around like a roaring lion and he's seeking someone to devour. And the only way he can be fought off is standing firm in faith. And so when Satan devours you, he devours your faith and he wants to use the thorn as an instrument to destroy your faith. And as soon as Satan can crush your faith, then he can kill your walk and he can kill your ministry. And having robbed you of the Lord's joy, having robbed you of the Lord's peace, having killed your faith, killed your walk, killed your ministry, you are then primed for him to destroy your soul in this life and the next. And he will do it through this smothering and suffocating hopelessness. Paul said the thorny satanic messenger is sent to harass him. Other translations translate that word as torment him. And oh, how true that is. If in the middle of the thorn, in the middle of the thorns of persecution from people in your life whom you love, in the middle of the thorn of suffering physical beatings for Christ, in the middle of the thorn of sitting in jail for your faith, in the middle of the thorn of opening the fridge and not finding as much food as you want for yourself or the kids, in the middle of debilitating health problems, in the middle of carrying the painful anxiety of what's going on in the church and the lives of your dear brothers and sisters, Satan comes and he torments you with lies and he torments you with accusations about what the thorns mean. For example, it is not limited to this but here is a wordy example that's come to me from Satan and people I know. Satan wants you to believe that the thorn, it's a sign from God it's a sign that God is not good and that, that he's lied to you. He wants you to believe the thorns is a th- sign from God that he's not with you and that God has left you. He wants you to believe the thorn is a sign from God that you should quit your ministry. He wants you to believe the thorns are evidence from heaven that you're too over the top in following Jesus. And you're paying a painful cost as a result. Satan wants you to believe the thorns of anxiety for the churches that you carry. It's the proof that being an intimate part of the body, it's too painful, it's too costly. Just sit yourself back and kind of coast. Don't get too close. It isn't worth it. He wants you to believe you're not really a Christian because if you're a Christian, uh, why are these hard things happening to you? And so since you're not really a Christian, you should just give up. And the present thorn that's painfully pricking you. It's proof from God of your illegitimacy as a Christian and especially as one who would seek to minister to others and evangelize the lost. And so from Satan, he communicates to you. He, he comes and tells you, stop serving the Lord. Stop following. You need to quit. The thorns are the proof. Stop standing boldly for Christ. Stop pressing on in your ministry. Stop persevering in relationships in the body. Stop trying to make your marriage and family Christ-centered. It isn't going to work. Those are some of the thoughts Satan uses to torment you while the thorn is piercing you. And during these times, he likes to send Job's friends to you. And in these points of vulnerability, Satan likes to minister to you while they sit there and water these seeds of doubt that Satan's sowing into your mind. Here's the proof from God. You're not doing what you should be doing. You're not following the Lord. Quit. And when you think through the thoughts Satan plants in your mind and where he's encouraging you to go with them, they will almost always be give up on God, give up on the church, give up on the ministry, give up on all of these things. Does that sound like God to you at all? Exactly, it's not. It's Satan, which is why you have to understand when thorns prick you, a satanic messenger's gonna be attached to the thorn you got to know that so that you can tell him to shut up when he gets there. <clears throat> so that's what Satan's doing in the thorn. God is doing something quite different. God is, does not have even close to the same message that Satan has through your thorns. So let's look at what God is up to. Uh, in the thorns here so when a man let's look uh, uh, i'll just give you the here's a spoiler alert first thing god's doing is crushing our pride with thorns when a man is greatly used by god as paul was and when a man experiences wonderful things in the lord like being caught up into the third heaven one of the biggest temptations coming on the heels of those things is the growth of pride in the soul so the first purpose of the thorn that God has for Paul in verse 7, he says, it's to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So here we can see the divine design of God is to send thorns that are so painful, so powerful, so overwhelming that it brings a person to the end of himself and crushes his pride. That's exactly what Paul said happened to him back in chapter one of 2 Corinthians when in 2 Corinthians 1 verse eight and nine he said he was so crushed by one of these thorns that it made him want to die. And then he said what he learned in that experience was this was so that we could rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. That's another way of saying God gave me a thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. I could say God gave me a hardship so I wouldn't rely on myself but rely on God. Or I could say God gave me a thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. It's the same thing. There's a great humbling power in the deep realization that you can't help yourself. You can't muster up the resources to deliver you from your despair. And if God doesn't somehow move in you, you won't make it. Listen, please hear this. God helps those who help themselves. That is a lie. The truth is, God crushes those who help themselves so that they can learn to live off of his help rather than their own. Psalm 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Have you ever meditated on what it doesn't say? I think it's great that it does not say, I lift my eyes up to the mirror. Where does my help come from? My help comes from me, baby. It doesn't say that. Praise God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, God is lovingly after the destruction of our pride and conceit. We can't be close to God in our pride. We can't be used by God in our pride. Where do I get that? 1 Peter 5, 5, James 4, 6, Proverbs 3, 34. His word says what? He resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. The sure way, I'm a basketball coach. The sure way to have God D up on you is to be prideful. You ain't scoring on God. You ain't even getting a shot off. And so God will send you. Sometimes we get so prideful that a thorn will come into our life that He He's got to send one to crush us. I mean, is am I alone in how easy it is to become prideful? I could go in the gym by myself and like uh, you know I'm working out and like I hit a few threes in a row and after about three threes I'm just like bang yeah and, and uh, I'm all full of myself. It's so easy to get prideful. And then I just like, I'm like, dude, first of all, you're scoring on no defense. And secondly, like you're just putting a ball through a metal rim. Like, what, dude, what you know about the orbits of the moon around Saturn? I'm like, what? I- exactly. God knows everything about him and everything else that you don't know. Just fade it. You, you're not the man. So sometimes we have to have the Lord come in and just wham, I need that and so do you. So he'll do that and then he will use a thorn. And when, when, when a thorn is breaking us and crushing us and you get brought to the place, I have no idea what to do. Here's this thing, I really want it to go this certain way, even if it's a good thing for God's glory, I want it to go, but I can't change it. I have no power to change this. I don't even know what to do. I don't have the resources to do that. What do you do? You rely on God. Huh. That sounds like humility. How is a thorn the sign God's left you? It's the sign God loves you. Not that he left you. If you understand what they're doing. The purpose of God in sending the thorn is not only to crush our pride, but also to do something else, according to verses 8 and 9. Let's look. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. We're going to deal with, God, or with Jesus saying no to Paul's prayer here in a moment. But for now, I want you to see the first part of Christ's answer to Paul's prayer to remove the thorn is no. And the stated reason is because Jesus tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. So the second purpose of God in the thorn is to show you the sufficiency of his grace. Through the thorns that he refuses to remove in our lives, we learn this. Grace is something that's impossible to merit from God, otherwise it wouldn't be grace, it would be wages, right? That's how Paul talks in Romans 4. Grace is something he freely gives of his own accord to accomplish his own purposes, and as we already saw, God gives it to the humble. So as the thorns are crushing our pride and harassing us, and we ask God in prayer to take them away, and he says no... He doesn't say no without being willing to sustain us by the sufficiency of grace. That's really important to know that. It's not just no. It's no. I have something far better for you. You're going to learn about my grace you're going to learn about the sufficiency of it. Not just your salvation, though that's true, it's by grace, but for your whole life, for everything, for this thorn. Guys, we don't get saved by grace through faith in Christ and then somehow like move on where now it's up to us to figure everything out. We still live off of grace. The thorns, they hurt, they cause us grief, they weaken us, they create in us a need for something greater than ourselves. They create us a need for something that would originate outside of ourselves and what that need is, it's the very grace of God and it's sufficient for us. Do you notice that? It says the grace of God is sufficient. It didn't say the grace of God plus six months emergency fund is sufficient. It says the grace of God is sufficient. It doesn't say the grace of God plus being popular is sufficient. It says the grace of God is sufficient. It doesn't say the grace of God plus perfect health is sufficient. It says the grace of God is sufficient. No matter how big and pokey and painful the thorn is, though it is too much for you to endure on your own, it is not bigger than God's grace. And his grace will be sufficient for the thorn. And as you follow the Lord and refuse to listen to the satanic messengers in your thorn, you will learn the precious lesson of living off of the sufficient grace of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ to his glory. Even if you walk through life with thorns poking out of your sides. His grace is sufficient. There is not a greater lesson a Christian could learn. Now, the next stated purpose of God in sending thorns to his people is that he does this in order to weaken us so that in our weakness, his power will rest upon us. Look at the rest of Christ's response to Paul's prayer in verse 9. Jesus says here, my power is made perfect in weakness. Jesus is going to keep Paul weak so that instead of Paul having Paul's power, he gets to have God's. That's a cool reason not to answer a prayer. That's a good trade, just FYI if you're wondering. That is a good deal. Uh, get rid of my power in exchange for God's. And <clears throat> so when Paul hears the, this answer of no to his prayer request, and then he understands why the answer is no, because he's gonna, he needs his pride crush, he needs to learn the sufficiency of Christ's grace, and he's going to have Christ's power rest upon him in his weakness, no wonder he says at the end of verse 9, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ can rest on me. He's hurting, he's weeping, he's crushed. There's, there's this, ah, oh, just that, that everybody who's ever tried to serve Jesus for real has experienced. And he's pleading with God, I want it to stop. But then once he understands why it's not stopping, Paul's like, yeah, okay, cool. So, when the crushing thorns of life come to you, whatever they are, God is, here's another lie we need to diffuse. God is not bringing it into your life because he knows how strong you are. Don't you hate it when people say that? I hate, had, A couple times I've had people say that to me. Oh, he knows that you're strong enough to handle. I was like, that's a really bad answer, devil. That is not what God is bringing a thorn into your life for. He never gives us more than we can handle. Nonsense. That's not true. These things are not biblical statements. They make for good bumper stickers by arrogant people. But can you, somebody explain to me how when I say, hey, I have this thorn and it's crushing me, but God showed me it's because of how strong I am. How is that not promoting pride? That promotes the very arrogance that Paul says here the thorns designed to destroy. Don't listen to that. Don't talk to people like that. Don't be a devil messenger in their suffering and tell them that stuff. That's not what he's doing. Guys, he doesn't want you to live on your power, he doesn't want you to live on your own understanding, Proverbs 3 5. He wants you to live off him. He is not trying to turn you into the Christian version of Captain America. Well, at least pre-Endgame Captain America. He's not trying to get you to be the superhero of your own story. He's making you weak so that he gets to be the hero of your story. And all of these thorns are his tool to demonstrate his greatness in your life. Praise God. So when Paul prayed and asked God to remove the thorn, Jesus tells him the reason he didn't do it is not because Paul didn't have enough faith. He didn't say no to that prayer because uh, uh, Paul's, you're strong enough to handle it, handle it on your own. He didn't do that. He said no for these glorious purposes. He's not saying no because God's not real or he doesn't have the power to remove your thorns. He's not telling you no if you have a thorn that he won't remove. He's not telling you no because he wants you to give up on your faith. He's not telling you no because he wants you to be hopeless about your marriage. He's not telling you no because he wants you to be hopeless about relationships in the church. He's not telling you no because he wants you to quit whatever ministry you're a part of. And he's certainly not telling you no because he doesn't love you. Those are all satanic interpretations of the reason why God doesn't remove thorns. If there's a thorn in your life that he won't remove, he's using it to keep you humble. He's fitting you through weakness to have the power of God rest upon your life and your ministry. And he's teaching you the sufficiency of his grace, how to live off of him. By faith. I think that's fantastic. <clears throat> Look at these precious purposes of God. They're very loving, they're sin destroying, they're God honoring, and they're all accomplished through the painful and human strength consuming thorn. So when you look at what God is doing through the thorns, what God himself tells you in the word he's doing, you can ask the question, where is God in the thorns of life and his refusal to move them? Where is he? Where are you, God? He is right there. He's right there doing awesome things for you, the best things that could ever be done for you. And if you understand that, if you understand this from his word and by faith you have eyes to see, then you can do what Paul did. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. The only reason Paul can say this is not because the thorn stopped hurting. Paul can say this because he understands with the mind of Christ what's going on through the thorn. Nobody who has a thorn in their life and thinks it's the sign of God's hatred toward them can say, I'm content with this. Nobody. Nobody will say that. Nobody who has a thorn in their life and thinks this is the proof that like God hates me turns around and says, Oh, I'm content with the thorn. Like nobody says that. But when you have this thorn in your life and it is crushing you and weakening you and making you cast yourself on Jesus and you're learning these things and you know these promises from this passage and you're getting closer to the Lord and you taste with Jesus the fellowship of his sufferings and you know, okay, this is what you went through, Lord. This is what I'm going through, Lord, help me. And you able with the eye of faith to lift up above your pain into the presence of God and meet him there and your wounded self, your hurting self, your broken self kisses the pierced feet of Jesus, as it were. You're just like, Yeah. If this is what you're doing, I can keep going. If this is what you're doing, I can praise you. If this is what you're doing, yes, Lord. You know what kind of life is built from a person with that mindset? a wonderful life that's really hard and that shows 10,000 times over and over again the sufficiency of Christ's grace and the power of Christ to rest upon you in your weakness. And it's a life of humility and worship. It's awesome. So I always sing the song. I will spare Noel, but the, I won't sing it. I'll say it. Jesus, Jesus, how I love him, how I've proved him o'er and o'er. So if you interpret the thorns rightly, they won't do to you what they fear they, what you fear they might, namely destroy your walk or your witness or your ministry. Instead, you're going to learn these wonderful things. And I want to ask you by way of, or give you some questions to ask yourself, what would the difference in your joy and your peace and your love and your selflessness be if you regularly had great confidence that God was doing these things to you in the thorns of your life? How different would your life look? How different would your emotional life look? How different would your prayer life look? How different would all those things look if you understood why the thorns are in your life? The thorn's gonna lodge in you. It's gonna torment you. It's gonna be painful. And in the middle of it, in the weakness of faith, you can plant yourself in the belief God's killing your pride, he's sustaining you with his grace, and his power is gonna be poured out on you. That is a very humanly weak way to live that is a very humble way to live and at the same time it is super powerful because God said or Paul said when I'm weak then I'm strong don't believe the soul destroying arrogant promoting self-pitying, ministry-ending lies that Satan tells you about your thorns. He's a liar. He's just trying to deceive you. He's just trying to destroy you. He wants to harm the name of Christ. You have to believe God's purposes. And so here's a, another question. Are you willing to pray to God to crush your pride and are you willing, do you want to ask God, hey, show me more of your grace. Show me more of your power. We're about to start this new ministry, Lord. We pray for your power to be on here. And we want to be humble about it and give the glory to you. Please show your grace, show your power. How do you think he's gonna answer that prayer? We joke sometimes at our church that if you pray for something, you better watch out. Because God will give you things, uh, answers to those prayers that are maybe not what you would expect. And so, in closing, I would say this is what God is doing for his people in their thorns. God himself knows what it's like to go through these things. God himself knows what it's like to suffer because when God looked at human suffering, he became a man. And he put skin on and he came to this world and he went through everything we went through and far worse. Do you have the suffering of lack? Jesus said he has no place to lay his head. Do you have the suffering of rejection from your family members? Jesus said in, you know, only in his own hometown is a prophet without honor. Do you have the suffering of rejection from your kinsmen, the Jews? They hated him, like most fiercely. Gentiles didn't like him. The Romans were mocking him while he was on the cross. You ever been lied about and slandered? That happened to Jesus too. Have you ever been arrested wrongly? That happened to Jesus too. Tortured? That happened to Jesus too. Obviously you haven't been killed yet because you're here. You might be. That happened to Jesus too. But you know what happened to Jesus that will never happen to you if you're in Christ? You will never bear the wrath of God. Jesus died on the cross and took the wrath of God in our place. So as we come to him as our savior, we are forgiven for our sins. You have a God who knows everything about thorns. He doesn't just design them and use them in your life. He took them himself. The Lord Jesus knows what it's like to live in human weakness. 2 Corinthians 13, 4, said, Christ was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. This is our master, saints. This is the one whom we follow. We do not follow someone born in a Roman palace that lived on cruise ships living his best life now. We don't follow that. We follow a crucified Savior. And where he is, there we will also be. We are not above him. He has saved us in this way. He, uh, by embracing his own suffering and death, he meets us in this. He walks us through these valleys. He's with us in the thorns. He sends the thorns. He defeats Satan. And what do we have to do? Believe. Trust. Follow. Persevere. Hope in him. Rejoice in him. Stay at it. So, anyways, this is what God's doing for you, and whatever thorn is in your life right now. And it is my deep, deep, deep burden to see people in our land changed. Into the type of Christian that doesn't say, I know I'm a Christian because I went on three cruises last year, it says, I know I'm a Christian because I have been faithful to God, and I'm rejected, and I'm suffering, and I'm persecuted, and I have all these things attacking me, but I stand firm in my master. I follow him in his bloody feet, and I kiss him, and I bear the marks of Jesus in my body. I know him. I'm sold out. I ride with him. Let's go. What can man do to me? All he can do is kill you. Let's do it. You will never be that kind of Christian if you interpret your thorns the wrong way. So, uh, as we close in prayer, uh, there are a couple of people in our church that I want to pray for right now who are going through some difficult thorns. Uh, a member of our church, Carissa Demuth, is pregnant right now. Uh, she is, tomorrow will be 23 weeks along, and she has some bleeding issues and infection risks that her life is l- legitimately in danger, and so is the baby's. And she has to stay hospitalized the remainder of her pregnancy because things could change like that. And her husband, Jeremiah, and her, if you guys ever get to meet Jeremiah and Carissa, they'll be here probably for the fire conference if she's out of the hospital. They're awesome, and they are persevering very well. But I would like to pray uh, for the baby and our brother Dan uh, has recently been diagnosed with terminal cancer that he's been given 18 months to live. So uh, he also, I went there Thursday night with Joe, um, a friend of mine over here from our church. We went and Dan's preaching to us and he's telling us all about his hope in Jesus and this is why we have Jesus, so that when we die, we're okay and we ended singing songs. So uh, Dan's a great guy, but I want to pray for him too. Um, so, let's, let's uh, please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for sending your Son to uh, overcome sin, death, and Satan. Lord Jesus, we thank you for how faithfully you lived these things out uh, in our midst. Lord Jesus, as we follow you in faith, God, we thank you for your perfect thorns. We thank you you're the Lord of the thorn. We thank you that though Satan would torment us and try to get us to do all kinds of demonic things in the thorn, we thank you, Lord, that you're present with us and that you have totally different purposes. And I pray, Lord God, that you would please help us to interpret our thorns rightly. Help us to be a durable Christian that's been broken uh, by your grace, that's been broken, that hopes in you, that trusts in your grace, that lives on your power, that can endure things in life, that is not so fragile that one little thing goes wrong and we freak out, that we can take it over and over and over again, not because we're strong, but because your power rests upon us, that we know, God, even in our lack, your grace is sufficient, and that we could stand there and as these jars of clay and having this treasure inside of us that doesn't break, we can explain to all the nations, what's the explanation for our life? Here's the explanation. Jesus is risen from the dead, and he is with us, and he keeps us, and he blesses us, and we are not consumed because of his grace, and even if you kill me, to die is gain, and I'm with the Lord. God, make us a people like that that burns brightly in the land of comfort worship. And Father, we pray uh, for Carissa and the baby and for Jeremiah, we ask for your mercy and grace. We ask that you will spare their life, Lord. We thank you through their suffering that they are uh, shining as a light for you so well. Uh, we ask you to spare them. We ask this child God would uh, grow into a wonderful Christian that has been weakened and that learns the sufficiency of your grace and that lives in your power and that loves you more than life. Thank you for how Jeremiah and Carissa are exuding this. And Father, we lift up our brother Dan and we thank you, Lord, that uh, though he hears this news about his life, he can look at it and say, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And rejoice in Christ and sing. And we pray for Dan that you will sustain his faith, that you will sustain his joy, that you will sustain his confidence in Christ, Lord, and that you'll be near to him in a special way. So please, God, help us be more like the real Jesus. We love you and pray that you will get great glory in our lives. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.